And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray for the preaching. O oh, our holy God, what a word we have before us. What a setting and a fixing of our joy where it ought to be, in heaven with Christ. And we ask for great success in the preaching of the word now, that you would be with the minister, thy servant, as he proclaims the excellencies of Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Spirit be pleased to use this time, this hour of preaching, to accomplish the ends that are established by the Word. Give your Spirit in such a measure that the man would decrease, that we would only see Christ. And may the people of God here uh, see the glory of Christ, and may we also see where our hope ought to be, where our name ought to be, written in heaven. And if any here have not uh, cast themselves upon the Lord, may this be the day in which they flee to Christ, and know of a truth then that their name is written in heaven. May you do these things now for the glory of God. So we ask, Father, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, that grace would be given that I should preach among this congregation the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we pick up our text, uh, we return to Luke and we remember that in the first verse, of this chapter, and it's been a little while now, several weeks, our Lord Jesus sent out his 70 disciples two by two into every city and town, uh, every place whither he himself would come. And in some ways, beloved, it struck me that the significance of this action is often lost on us, but is meant to be brought to us through this text. And if you think about redemptive history, this is really in many ways, the sending of the 70, the first large-scale assault on, Christ's kingdom, on Satan's kingdom by Christ's kingdom. This is the first mass attack on the kingdom of sin and Satan. Jesus Christ sending his disciples to plunder the strong man. And he demonstrated through this successful mission that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That Satan's thraldom is decisively broken over the nations. Christ, the liberator, had come, Satan powerless to stop the inevitable, his days being numbered. Soon, and you just have to go into the book of Acts and then into church history after that, soon the entire world for the first time would be blanketed with the gospel successfully. And, and many nations and peoples and tribes would come in a way that had never happened before because of Satan's thraldom of the nations. In Revelation 12, we just read that he had deceived the nations. And now that deception is being turned around. But as wondrous as this was to the disciples, as they rejoiced in Satan's downfall, Christ told them, never, never displace your greatest joy which is to know that your name is written in heaven. To know that you are one of God's elect, that you are saved and saved forever. In other words, don't be so thrilled that Satan has fallen from heaven. Be thrilled that your name is written in heaven. That's where we ought to focus our attention, children of God. And this recalibration of our joy is helpful because though Satan is in many ways defeated, you know, he's still... Uh, he does still prowl around. This recalibration of our joy means that when there are seemingly setbacks in the mission of gospel advance 
or there are difficulties in our life of any kind, joy ever abides if we know that our name is written in heaven. Uh, Things will ebb and flow in this world, even in your own life. But he says, if you would remember that your name is written in heaven, child of God, you will have abiding joy, come what may. And so with that, our theme is to rejoice over a name written in heaven. Rejoice over a name written in heaven. And we'll consider it under the two joys found in our text, these two headings. First, joy in the victory over Satan. Second, joy in a name written in heaven. So our first heading, joy in the victory over Satan. Verse 17, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Well, the seventy return, and they give a tremendous response or report to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are uh, absolutely astonished with great joy and enthusiasm. They report to Christ that they had cast demons out and the demons were subject to them. Now, this is the very thing that Jesus had promised in Luke 9, 1 and 2. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So what Christ had promised had come to pass. We think of all the promises of God. They are yea and amen in him. Whatever he says will come to pass will indeed come to pass. All the promises in the Bible, beloved, come to pass in him. He had said, though, that he had given them power over the kingdom of Satan so that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, would advance. And through and through, that is what you find in the New Testament and in the church age which is that the preaching of the kingdom will succeed, that the kingdom of sin and Satan will be utterly demolished, that Satan and the world actually do not have the upper hand, but Christ does. Which reminds us, though, as we think on this text, that we don't proclaim the good news of Christ in our own strength. We look to the power of the Lord in that. We, though we have a position of weakness naturally, have a position of strength if we are in him and we do our labors according to the Lord. By the Holy Spirit, Christ working through us, what does he promise in 2 Corinthians 2.14? Right? This is a promise from God. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Always causeth us to triumph, but in whom? Christ. And maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us, In every place. What is promised here? He causes us to triumph in Christ. He has given the same gospel promise of victory to his church. And yet, we often find, what do we find? Much pessimism in the church, don't we? Over the gospel advance. There's much retreating then done by the church in the West. Too few embrace the promise of Christ's gospel victory, which he has pledged in many places. And then you think of the effects, right? You can work backward from the effect to the cause here. We don't send missions out. We don't evangelize. We don't expect there to be victory in the world through the church's labors. The gospel trumpet is so often silent because we don't believe what Christ has promised. Where are the laborers in the fields as he has sent told us to not just pray for them, but to send them out. If we would know and believe that Christ will have the victory, always causing us to triumph in him, we would go in every place. And where is our joy then in seeing souls translated from death to life as the disciples undoubtedly had great joy? You think in Reformed churches, why don't we see converts as much as we should? Is it because we don't believe these promises? We don't go out. We have a sense of pessimism over the state of the church and and the world. And we think we'll just retreat into our little bunker here. He says, go out. And he says, I will have the victory through you. We seem, especially with the rise of dispensationalism in the West, we have a kind of newspaper theology where every time we see some bad news In the newspaper, we say, well, that's it. Christ must be coming soon. It's all lost. No, friends, that's not a theology rooted in the promises of God and the word of God. There's too little remembrance in our mind because, of course, as Americans, we have no clue of history. 
Everything began in 1776, evidently. But uh, Christians today despondent over the state of the world would do well to look at the history of the church and how Christ has gone conquering and to conquer. Right? If you are despondent over liberalism and postmodernism's advances, you're deluded if you think these are stronger than the Roman Empire and the papacy. Christ has dealt with far worse, far worse than what you are dealing with here in America. You know, we have many people who are always making fun of snowflakes. Well, the church has become a bunch of snowflakes, afraid of going forth and thinking that we are on uh, the retreat. Maybe we are, but that's because we don't embrace the promises of Christ here. You know, our forefathers went into mission fields far more difficult than uh, the woke movement, beloved. And Christ gave them great victory. But they went out clutching his promises found in the word of God, believing this Bible by faith and who he is and what he can do. Now, I also want to, uh, well, and let me just put this thought. I think, you know, we'll consider Satan in just a bit. But I think one of uh, Satan's last remaining uh, great deceptions seem to be, seems to be to rob us of hope and joy in gospel victory by clouding uh, minds of many, evidently, to say that Christ is defeated. And his own people seem to believe this. Now, I want to turn this maybe a bit more personal to you, beloved. Um, If you've ever felt a kind of pessimistic hopelessness when it comes to the conflict raging in your own soul, you must ask yourself, is there any indwelling sin that Christ cannot conquer? You and I, we do wrestle with enemies far too great for us to grapple with in our own strength. But we are told, put on the armor of God. In Ephesians six twelve and 13, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? That ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, is the idea here, you know, put on the armor of God so that you can be defeated well? No, that's absurd. That you may be able to stand. Now, I would challenge any here to find any pessimistic text in the scripture about what Christ can do in the world or in your own soul. Find one. Find a single solitary one. You will not produce one. You know, I have lost track of the number of number of Christians who embrace, maybe even wholeheartedly, a kind of optimistic eschatology in the gospel advance out there, yet seem defeated thinking that the gospel cannot advance in here, in their own heart and in their own soul. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Never embrace defeatism of any species in religion, which says that Christ cannot conquer any evil, especially in your own soul. You and I must press on in faith, knowing that Christ will have the victory. Well, the second thing we note that was a bit of an excursion is the joy of the disciples when they return. They return with great enthusiasm. Right? This ought to be one of our chief joys. When, when Christ points them to a greater joy, he is not diminishing their joy over what they have accomplished. And you find here this great enthusiasm for kingdom expansion that should cause us to rejoice whether or not we ourselves are involved in the work. In fact, we ought to anticipate uh, the joy of kingdom expansion and ourselves then would pray for it and we would labor for it. And what does the 85th Psalm say? Wilt thou not revive us again? Why? That thy people may rejoice in thee. So this is joy when the people of God are revived and strengthened by the Lord. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. What a prayer that is. Grow the kingdom, Lord, why? That we may rejoice in thee. Which tells you what? That you ought to have joy when the kingdom expands. And if this is one of your chiefest joys, ought you not pray for it? Ought you not desire it? Ought you not delight in it? Wouldn't you search the news, not seeing what ridiculous thing is happening in Washington today, but the way in which Christ is going out and conquering? I'm not saying you can't look at the news. That's not the point. We, our joy is not set in the right place, is the thing. 
Grow the kingdom, Lord, so that we, thy people, may rejoice in thee. We will pray for the proper things, thy kingdom come, when we make the kingdom growth our chief joy, or one of our chief joys. Well, and as I have also spoken of your own personal sanctification, believer, uh, thus far, you ought to take joy then in this thought, that Christ can and will purge you of your own sin. Ought this not be one of the things you rejoice in? Uh, that Christ may make you more holy. You ought to rejoice, in, and we are not in the habit of it, of joying, rejoicing over every bit of ground he has purchased in our heart. You look back in your life, Christian, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you are going to find victories he has won in your soul, and you are to have a greater joy than the disciples did to see that the devils were subject to them. You ought to have this great and terrible joy saying, um, great and wonderful joy rather, Lord, even my sin nature is subject to me through thy name. The victory is his after all, not yours. And that's why we rejoice without boasting. Well, that takes us back to what the disciples admitted of the victory, that they did this work through thy, that is Jesus' name. Uh, They acknowledged it was Christ's divine power. So this is the disciples, perhaps, at one of their best. It, It was Christ, it was you, God, that did it, that we didn't defeat Satan and his devils. Christ, working through us, won the victory. We must always, then, remember as we look on the disciples as we've even considered it thus far, the power of Christ in every moment. Uh, Children, you remember, it's been a little while now, but you remember how Christ confronted legion, right? Uh, Thousands of demons. Was there a contest at all? No, not at all. Christ doesn't exert himself. Uh, The demons quake and tremble, a thousand demons at least against one Christ. And it's effortless for the Savior, for the Redeemer. Or you go to the temptation of Christ in Luke 4, and you find Christ at his weakest bodily, and yet the devil scrambles and scrambles and scrambles to find anything in him to use, and he finds nothing. Or you go to the cross, what appears to be Satan's greatest triumph, and you find Satan's greatest defeat. Satan had entered Judas, Christ was betrayed. Christ was nailed to a cross. But even that was not the devil's scheme, but God's, wasn't it? Acts 2.23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So that in the crucifixion of Christ is not the devil's great victory, but his greatest defeat. Children, you have to see here, right? Uh, Colossians 2.15, before I maybe exhort you in this way, uh, speaking of the cross, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Children, triumph after triumph after triumph by our Lord Jesus Christ. In what way do we think Christ is in any sense powerless? He is not. Uh, the enemies of God are powerless before him. We are, as the church, are never to forget it. Triumph after triumph, even in what appears to us to be defeats, you will find one day, if you don't know now, how all these apparent defeats actually worked to the victory of Christ, even as the cross did. Even as Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil to me, God meant for good, to save the world. And we, the church, must never forget it. So, With that in view, Christ says in verse 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, there's been considerable debate, as you might know, over this verse. Was Jesus speaking of the fall of Satan from heaven in perhaps a heavenly rebellion? Some take it then, knowing that one of the devil's chief uh, vices was pride, saying that Jesus here is cautioning his disciples against pride, uh, and that's why the devil fell from heaven, so don't be overly proud of your labors. But that doesn't seem to be the sense of the text, uh, especially because the disciples did give glory to Christ through thy name. And they saw themselves as mere vessels of his power. Now, there is a good point here, of course, even though that's not, I believe, the sense of the text, which is that um, we are to never boast in the works that God does in us and through us as though we had done the work. 
We must never be prideful even of our sanctification or our attainments in religion. We always say, these things came through thy name, O Lord. It was God working through me. If I have anything good, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. This is the heart of the Christian. Never pride in whatever is accomplished. If Christ is the one who gains the victory, as we have heard, he must have the glory and not us. And really, that's where true joy comes. That Christ has been working through me. What a thing that is to know that the power of Christ rests on me as the apostle exalted in 2 Corinthians 12. In any case, though, for the sense of the text, the Greek text reveals what Christ saw regarding Satan. Uh, The word translated beheld in the Greek is in what is called the imperfect active tense, uh, a past action that is not yet complete. Uh, You could translate it this way. Uh, As the disciples were doing their work, it's as though Christ said, I was beholding Satan fall from heaven. As I was seeing Satan fall. In other words, through your gospel preaching and your gospel exertions, I saw Satan falling and falling. You could say that he was being knocked off of his high horse, is another way to put it. From his so-called throne, from which he had been ruling the nations, the so-called God of this world was falling and falling. You remember how much Satan was secure that the nations were under his grasp, that he was uh, he was, it's astonishing, right? He offers to the Son of God in his temptation, I will give you the nations. This is how entrenched the devil felt he was in the world, in the temptation of Christ. But Christ said to the 70, as you went out and you did your labors, I saw Satan and I was beholding him fall from heaven as lightning. You know, since the time of the incarnation, Satan's power has been broken. I want you to remember the state of the world when the 70 were sent out. You know, from the time of the fall, Satan had bound and deceived the world in idolatry, hadn't he? Uh, Consider 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, meaning Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, for those of you who don't believe, uh, that ought to chill you, really, that Satan has blinded your minds. The reason you don't come to Christ besides your own impenitent heart is that the God of this world, uh, Satan, uh, you're under his thraldom. You're not a free agent, as you imagine, but Satan rather has his hooks in you, though Christ can set you free, which we'll consider at the end. But as we come back to the state of the nations, Consider in Genesis 3, right after the fall, the seed of Satan was competing with the seed of the woman. And it all looks terribly backwards and upside down at most points, doesn't it? Right? It seems hopeless. The, the seed of the woman, the godly line, always seemed so small and always seemed so inconsequential. You have Abraham and his little family seemingly alone in the world, right? not a great nation. The whole world under the sway of Satan's dominion, such that at the time of Christ, in all the world, only Judea had any flickering light of true religion. A small patch of land in the Middle East, inconsequential to the world, a troublesome people. The Romans could hardly be bothered to manage it. They send um, uh, second-rate hacks like Pontius Pilate to rule them. But when the Son of God came, Everything was reversed, wasn't it? In 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And John twelve thirty one. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The prince of this world, the ruler of this world, the one that the nations were blinded by. I have come to cast him out. And I see Satan uh, falling from heaven as, as though lightning And so I struck him and he fell down. Satan's dominion over the nations is over, friends. Christ is showing us that. He is still active, absolutely. But his power to blind and deceive has been smashed by the Son of God in a completely remarkable, remarkable providence. We read Revelation 12.9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, 
and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth. This is the doing of the Son of God. The one who has deceived the nations, cast down, cast down into the earth. And we must remember, Christ saw Satan fall as lightning. It happened so quick and so astonishingly fast. And what is interesting, and maybe this is a good analogy as we think on the church age, you remember lightning children happens in a flash, but the thunder, the sound of it, the effect of it continues for quite some time. And so the effect of Satan being knocked off his perch is heard today, and it continues long after the flash of lightning that Jesus saw is over. Thunder heard when every nation, tribe, and tongue come to Christ. The sending of the 70, as I said, was just the first major assault on Satan's stronghold, but it continues now in every place that the church goes to preach Christ. The same effect. The thunderclap reverberates every place the mission of the church goes. The blast of it heard every time the gospel trumpet sounds. And he gives us a promise to spur us on in verse 19. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You know, there's another verse where this just shows us just the dullness of our spirit, where so many of us focus our attention on the wrong spot, Right? Uh, we, te- we treat the text so literally, and undoubtedly men have gone into the woods to go step on a snake and die. But what was Jesus teaching? He's not talking about stepping on literal snakes and scorpions. As you may know, Christ is reminding us of two Old Testament texts. Deuteronomy 8.15, reminding us who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water. And you think, of course, of uh, that fiery serpent that was put on that pole that you may look upon and be saved from the fiery serpents. And he reminds us then that God has taken us through great wildernesses in the past and preserved, protected, and provided for us in every danger. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're reminded again that Christ was in it all. Right? And if God, if Christ is leading us, we have a promise. He will lead us through every danger unto heavenly Canaan. But also perhaps more pertinent is Psalm 91, verses 11 and 13 to 13. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Here we go. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, that is asp, the young lion and the dragon or serpent, shalt thou trample under feet. Now, surely there's something prophetic here about the people of God treading over Satan. You remember, it's so interesting when I preached on Psalm 91, I believe I mentioned this point, that the devil had the gall to tempt Jesus with this text. Isn't it astonishing? Tempting Jesus to jump off the temple for he shall give his angels charge over thee. And yet this is the very text that promises that Satan will be trod underfoot. It's remarkable how twisted the serpent is. Christ trampling the devil called the serpent of old and that dragon of the revelation. And so Christ is not speaking here in Luke 10 about us stepping on snakes. He's talking about something greater, a power to trample the devil underfoot. That is plain as he connects it to triumphing over all the power of the enemy. The enemy is not the scorpion in your backyard. The enemy here is the devil and his minions. This witness is consistent in the New Testament. What did Paul write in Romans 16.20? And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. What more can we get out of the Bible than to see that the people of God are going to be victorious over the works of the evil one? We are the body of Christ. And so Christ is going to crush Satan underfoot through his church, the church militant. So he says to his church, why be afraid? The enemy cannot withstand you as I work through you. Why be afraid? Why be afraid to do the work, to go out, to proclaim the gospel, 
to go and conquer the enemy in every stronghold. The enemy can't withstand you. What does James 4, 7, if you need another witness? Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. There is absolutely not a single text you can find in the scriptures that says anything other than in the New Testament era, there is, there is no uh, sense in which the church is going to be utterly defeated by Satan. Though for a time he does, he does rise up and we're on our, our, our hind feet, so to speak, yet the church always will get the victory, is the saying of the word of God. So the point of all this is simple. You and I ought to be very bold in kingdom expansion. The devil has no power over us. And even if we die in our exertions, one of the beauties, we've considered this in Hebrews 2.14, is that he has taken from us, because he has destroyed the devil's power over death, he has taken from us a fear of death as well. Such that if the, the, the minions of the devil, of the evil one, have us killed, As so many of our forefathers, you think in the Reformation and in the book of Acts, have been slaughtered for the case of Christ through the devil's minions, what has he done? He's just sent us sooner to the Lord. There is no defeat in that. In fact, you are sooner with your beloved. That's the worst thing the devil can do, and we're afraid of him? You know, in a sense, if we go, we go. And we're glad to the devil, in a sense. You just send me to the Lord Jesus. What is there to fear? Christ gives us power over him. Even in our limited time doing evangelism as a congregation, you've seen that the the minions of the devil have no power. Their mouths are shut up so often and they have nothing to say, really, to Christ. But yes, the devil still roams around like a roaring lion and we are to be on guard. Yes, the devil is still crafty, but he is rather crafty in this way. He's sort of like a, a, a very small animal who puffs itself up to look fearsome, more fearsome than he is. And we ta- are taken in by that. But in reality, before Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this so-called roaring lion is absolutely nothing. And we must remember that. Defeated. Such that we should pray boldly and we should act boldly in the Holy Spirit, never having pessimism over the power of Christ over the evil one. Even remembering 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Perhaps I just bring these texts to you to remind yourself of these things if you're feeling defeated today. And you're not looking to the Lord's power in any sense, not just evangelism, not just missions, in any sense. If you are feeling defeated, why feel defeated, uh, uh, child of God, when you can look to the Lord? Now, as I mentioned at times, there does appear to be setbacks in the cause of Christ. You can think of the great darkness before the Reformation, for instance, where the entire church itself seemed to be under the sway of the devil and that Antichrist. But what happens? Christ appears at the dawn of the Reformation and the church is liberated. No, the overall trajectory of the world from the time Christ sent these 70 out is that the darkness of the world is being slowly chipped away by the gospel. Such that nations like China are now seeing great numbers of conversions that the RP church in China is many times larger than the RP church in the rest of the world. In Iran, you have seen astonishing successes for Christ's cause. In so many places in this, in this dark world, you are seeing the light of the gospel continue to intrude. Why? Because Satan has lost his dominion over the nations, falling from heaven. And so even though we seem to live at a low point in our nation and the West as a whole, Christ continues to bring many nations under his dominion. And for this, we must rejoice, have joy, and be steadfast and immovable in missions, knowing that even this nation, its decline one day uh, will be reversed. Never give in to a kind of hopelessness. But in the face of apparent defeats, remember the truth. Christ said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And don't let he he who is called the father of lies deceive you in any other way. Even so, in our remaining time, let us see 
what Christ says about where our greatest joy ought to be. A name written in heaven, our second head. Verse 20, Christ says, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He says, Focus your joy on where it ought to be first and foremost. Your names are written in heaven. As I've said, this does not prohibit them from rejoicing over their labors and the successes that they have uh, tasted. But he says, keep your joy set on the greater joy, that your names are written in heaven. And this really ought to be our frame of mind, child of God. How often do you even rejoice in this if you're a believer? That your name is written in heaven. What other joys have intruded and what other joys have actually overshadowed this joy? Here he says, even the casting out of demons ought never overshadow this joy. And what joys have you allowed to overshadow this? What joys do you hope for and long for that have been frustrated that you allow to overshadow this joy? Well, let us ask, what does it mean to have a name written in heaven? Well, as you know, Christ is speaking of the book of life, the register and role of God's elect in heaven. Those who are found in it will be in heaven and have everlasting life. We considered it in our series on the seven churches on Wednesday nights. Now, you might ask the question, how do I get my name in there? How does the name end up there in heaven? Uh, you might think wrongly that the disciples have earned now through their labors a place in the book or a place in heaven by laboring for Christ. And we have to be very clear about this because, um, friends, it's vital you understand how you end up in the book of life. You must recognize that it's not by your works, but it's all by grace. Uh, these names that are in the book of life in the registry of heaven have been there since before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says, uh, it speaks of the Lamb's book of life written from the foundation of the world. You know, before these disciples went into the fields, before they were born, before that they were in the book, uh, the registry of heaven, not the Bible, though these are in the Bible. Think about this. Before God said, let there be light, their names were written in heaven. And that's the joy here. It is the registry of the elect of God predestinated to salvation, Ephesians 1.4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You know, those in the book of life have always been objects of God's eternal love. To be in the book, to have a name in heaven, is to know that God has always loved you and he will always love you and he will never cease to love you. This is one of the great joys of knowing that your name is written above. It is for each name in this registry that the Son of God, when he came into the world, purposed to lay down his life for at Calvary. Each one was laid on his heart as he was laid bare on the cross. It is for these that the Son of God came into the world. These are his sheep. And he said, I lay down my life for my sheep. And in time, he sends his Holy Spirit to all those who are written in the book of life, who are written in heaven above. And the Holy Spirit in love draws them to Christ. And if you are in the book, hear how God speaks to you in Jeremiah 31.3. Yea, I have loved thee with what love? An everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Now, I think you understand why the Lord says the greater joy is to know that your name is in this book. To know such things about the Lord's own commitment to you. You know, one of the beauties of this book is where it is. It's hidden in heaven, isn't it? In Christ himself. There is no man, there is no devil that can blot your name out of that book. It is safe and it is secure, child of God. Your names are written in heaven. Wicked men cannot blot your name out. It's out of their grasp. As you heard in Revelation 3, verse 5 in the Wednesday night series, 
God promises not to blot our names out of it if we are his. The Lord uses this word then in Luke 10 to tell us something else. You should discover if you are in it. Because this is where your joy is. How can you know? Do you know if your name is written in heaven? The Lord intimates here that you can know, that you can rejoice that you have a name written in heaven. Let's just ask a few questions, simple ones. Has he drawn you to himself, to Jesus Christ? Is your faith in him? Do you believe in him? Do you cast all of your hopes upon him for eternal life and salvation? If so, you can say you are in the book. For you are all of the children, you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26. Do you love the Lord in sincerity? Not perfectly, but do you love him in sincerity? You are in the book. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. 1 Corinthians 16.22. Do you endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him, repenting of sin and seeking forgiveness? You are in the book. The apostle said here, and do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and toward men? a marker that you are in the book of life. You can know you are in the book. Jesus says as much here, and so does the rest of Scripture. You know, the little epistle of 1 John is summed up by the 5th chapter, 13th verse. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You can know. And what is the beauty of that? Well, let me say this also, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Uh, Read 1 John, and you can test yourself and know if you have eternal life. And then you can say, I know my name is written in heaven. Isn't that a glorious thing to rejoice in? That my name was not written in, uh, I didn't write any name in any book, but God has written my name in a book and will never blot it out. 2 Peter 1.10 says, You are to be diligent to make your calling and election sure in this life to the aim that you would rejoice. Peter gives you a list of graces in 2 Peter 1 to aid you in the discovery of it. Uh, and I would just say for a future um, study, you can look at our Confession of Faith, chapter 18, on the assurance of salvation. Consider its scripture proofs and see what the Word of God says. You can know in this life Uh, infallibly, that your name is written in heaven. What a joy that is. And so, if you rejoice that your name is written in heaven, you can rejoice on what would follow that thought, that I will be in heaven, and that Jesus is waiting for me there. Did you now start to taste why this is the greater joy than the works we accomplish for the Lord? This is the greater joy. First Peter 1, 2 says, We have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved where? In heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And this is the other part of rejoicing, knowing that my name is in heaven. I am kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. At the same time, Jesus warns the hypocrite in our text. Jesus does not mean to say to the 70 that all these disciples had a name written in heaven. That's not what the text says, and that's not what the text means. We know that at least one did not, Judas Iscariot. And the reason then he exhorts these that have gone out and done mighty works is that even unbelievers have cast out demons in the name of Christ. Listen carefully to Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They come before the throne and they learn that though they had done many wonderful works, They are never known by God. They don't have a name written in heaven and they are cast into hell. We have no doubt that Judas did mighty works. He was gifted for a time to do it. And yet that man is now in hell. What a thing to think of Judas excited for all the wrong reasons when he came back 
excited that he saw the wonderful works of God, probably more excited that he had done something, and yet the man had no interest in Christ himself. And would soon do what? Betray Christ with a kiss. You know, sometimes we are staggered by ministers we discover were in fact fiends. We're astonished and we said, uh, we say, they preached such powerful sermons, they did such wonderful works, we might go to heaven and we would ask, where are they? Or maybe their sins were revealed on this side of heaven as Jesus exposes them as wolves to the church. And so we ourselves are warned in all these things. Don't rejoice that God has gifted you in some ways to accomplish great works. It's after all, it's Christ doing the work, not you. Don't rejoice if you are casting out demons and are a demon yourself. Rejoice if your name is written in heaven. Examine yourself, friends, if you are in the faith. See if your name is written in heaven. Rejoice if so, yes. But also examine yourself to see if you're a reprobate. Now, another reason to rejoice in this over the labor is that this rejoicing will keep you from uh, keep you laboring in difficulty of fighting the good fight of faith. You know, if your gospel labors seem fruitless, we would still have joy, wouldn't we? My name is written in heaven, come what may. Even though I don't see much fruit from my labors, And we, of course, know the truth of God's word, the promise. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know it's not in vain. But even when I'm discouraged and despondent over the state of things, I have great joy if I know my name is written in heaven. And I endure and I persevere. You know, if your joy is predominantly in your labors for Christ, you will probably mourn often. But he redirects you, saints, to remember your greater joy. Well, with time slipping by, I do want to speak to the unbeliever here today. Can you know if your name is in heaven? First of all, you don't presume that it is. That's what Christ is saying. I don't know if you're an unbeliever, if your name is there or not. In fact, I was an unbeliever for 30 years of my life. And uh, I had no clue that my name was written in heaven above. So you don't know yourself. You can't exclude yourself at this point. But if you die in unbelief, uh, you will know for sure that your name was never written there. But you can know that your name is there if you will ever cast yourself on Christ's mercies. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know that your name was written in the registry of heaven that God with an everlasting love has loved thee and with his loving kindness in time has drawn you to himself. And so this could be the day of salvation for you, unbeliever. And this could be the day in which you go home rejoicing with that greatest joy of all, that I am one of God's elect, that I have been loved by Father, Son, and Holy Ghost from before he said, let there be light. Respond to this invitation of the Lord as in the Song of Solomon. Draw me and we will run after thee. Run after the Lord as he calls you today. And he has promised in no wise will he cast you out. Well, I want to end our time with a remarkable word we will pick up uh, next time in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. We'll open with that text in the next sermon on Luke. But let me just point this out to you. This is the solitary occasion recorded of our Lord in the Gospels of him rejoicing on the earth. This is the one time that it records him rejoicing, the man of sorrows. Now, I have no doubt he rejoiced at other points, but this is the only record of it in the scriptures. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit, meaning it was a joy in the heart. He had great joy in his spirit. The Savior, you see, rejoices in the success of the gospel. His success through his own disciples 
He didn't have to be there directly healing and uh, preaching the word of God. But when he sees the success of his own disciples, he rejoices. And he says, Father, you have done this through these babes, through these children. And he is joyful over it. You know, it is said, and we've heard it often, that he endured the cross with the joy set before him. And here you find some of that joy that he had that sustained him. His victory over Satan through his children. It brings joy to the Savior's own heart to see Satan trod underfoot of our feet. For the gospel to advance by us. To see souls loosed from their captivity to sin and Satan. What a thing that is to see the Savior's joy. On the other side of the ledger, I cannot help but imagine that part of Satan's torments in hell for all eternity. This mighty angel has fallen. He'll be in torment that he was defeated by Christ through some such as us. Through babes, as Christ said. What a thing that Christ will use men of this world, men of his church, men like Peter and Thomas and you and me to defeat this haughty and prideful fallen angel. And he will be tormented forever with that thought. But in any case, may you and I labor for the Lord, knowing he has great joy when uh, he sees the gospel advance through us. And may that spur us on then, right? As we think of wanting to give joy to the heart of our Lord, that he would rejoice over our labors, that we are found in the book of life. He rejoices over that surely, but that also others who are in the book are called into the everlasting kingdom through our gospel labors. May we give the Lord such joy. We uh, must leave Luke here for now. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, help us to rejoice with a godly joy that those of us who are called of the Lord have a name written in heaven, that we have an inheritance incorruptible laid up in heaven, reserved for us there with Christ himself in whom we have our life hid, that no man can snatch us from his grasp, What joy ought to be in our hearts this day and yet often is far from us. Help us not to joy in anything above those things. Help us to not mourn any loss when we have this one gain. And help us, Father, then to set our affections upon the Lord where our life is hid, knowing that whatever comes to pass in this world, we are safe and protected by his almighty power, freeing us from our fear of death, that we may labor as unto the Lord, Uh, May we exert ourselves to the end of our days for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you grant us this as our desire? May you give us joy at the thought of the kingdom advancing and expanding. May you use our prayers and may you use our labors. May you use our church. May you use our presbytery, our denomination, and the totality of the visible church of Christ to crush Satan underfoot as thou hast promised. May you give us great boldness then in the proclamation of the gospel to see Um, what it is that those men in the book of Acts saw in Acts 17, that the world will be turned upside down through the proclamation of the gospel because the world that has resided in blindness for so long has had that blindness removed by the Holy Spirit working in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.